talk about Table Mountain, uh, UAPs, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So you'll notice we have a little bit of a different background tonight. This is a uh, calming atmospheric synth wave. I thought that'd be good for UAPs tonight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not so sure about that remix of uh, uh, The Chase, originally by uh, Georgia Maroder. I've been trying to rotate through the various Chase remixes to do something a little different. But, uh, yeah, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I think i got to find a different one. Anyway, uh, welcome to the show tonight. Um, in our starting news, uh, don't forget, Sierra Bigfoot Music Festival 2023 over in Twainheart, August 25th, 26th, 27th. Uh, they're going to have a lot of great music. They're going to have a lot of great music. And uh, I guess on the 27th, they're going to have a Bigfoot Symposium. That should be pretty, pretty darn good. We're uh, making some adjustments. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah, it's going to be really great. They're going to have uh, uh, Jerry Heim and Bob and Kathy Strain. Uh, they're all uh, nationally recognized the big split researchers. Yeah. And what's surprising about it is uh, they live in Jamestown. Well, I don't know if that's that surprising. I mean, <clears throat> we're pretty well known for Bigfoot. Up here, so. And uh, Kathy Strain literally wrote the book exactly. on uh, Bigfoot. And uh, the thing that, uh, this was an amazing thing that happened there is that at the end of the symposium, and there were, they had quite a group there. And at the end of the symposium, they said anybody, they brought out this big map with uh, pins in it. And uh, set, uh, and there are supposedly encounters, or signs of Bigfoot activity. And uh, they said anyone who uh, wants to put a pin in, anybody who's had an experience, come on up. And everyone there, maybe it wasn't everyone, but I mean there was a line. Pretty close. Yeah, of people that uh, wanted to put their pin in. So. Uh, well, I definitely got to put my pin in. All right. So what did you think of the, uh, uh, you want to do a little comment on uh, the uh, congressional hearings yeah. on uh, unidentified anomalous phenomenon uh, that yeah, happened? U UFOs wasn't good enough. Now we have to call it something else. I kind of uh, like that. And I like the fact that uh, uh, did they find... Uh, People driving the craft, I mean, it implies that there's pilots. And he said, yes, uh, the term is non-human biologics. Yes, non-human uh, biologics. Uh, so, 
thought that was pretty cool. And I liked the fact uh, it made a good photo op. AOC was sitting next to Matt Gates, yeah, and they were unexpected. asking questions. That, that, is, that is very unexpected. <laughs> and then what wasn't so unexpected, but uh, my big takeaway, because I had heard all those stories before, sure. and, uh, but my big takeaway is that it reminded me that all this, the Defense Department cannot be audited and billions of dollars disappear and uh, it gives you a pretty good idea of where that stuff's going. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all hidden within the uh, special access programs. So. No, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things. You know, you, you study UFOs long enough, and it's, I, I've been on many, many, sh you know, radio shows, and they always ask, well, what do you think of, of you know, disclosure? They call it disclosure. My answer is always very simple. You know, you can trot whoever you want in front of the Congress, but you're never going to get disclosure, ever. Because in order to get disclosure, in order for them to, to say, hey, we have non-human biologics, or whatever, aliens, EBEs, whatever they want to call it, they have to admit a series of very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable things in order for that to happen. Yeah, because they have to admit that they broke the law. Well, yeah, I mean, it's broke the law. They they hid things. They lied. <laughs> I mean, it's... Well, and, but right. also, you know, you have to remember is that the way the, that stuff works, right, is that it, they, they hide it within a special access program. And the access to special access programs is obviously very, very restricted. And then it's compartmentalized. Even within the special uh, access. Right. Program. So then nobody quite knows what they're working on. They're just working on a piece. Well, yeah, that's, and that goes back to the whole Bob Lazar thing in 89. Bob Lazar comes out and he says, you know, I worked at S4, the super secret base within Area 51, and all I worked on was a propulsion system. He worked on a reactor. I don't know anything else. I didn't see anything else. I was given a briefing. I don't know. I don't know. But... The, the biggest thing, though, is that the disclosure, it just, it's just not going to happen. You know, you can, you can publish all the videos you want. You can have whoever you want sit in front of Congress. You can have them provide whatever evidence you like. It was interesting that the subject came up that Congress was denied a skiff so they could uh, do a classified interview with the witnesses. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Because skiffs, you know, in that world, skiffs are very common. Right. They even have a thing called a T-skiff, you know, which is portable. But it's... The cone of silence, you remember <laughs> that? <laughs> it's literally the... I feel like, a, you know, I was checking the board, and I'm like, am I even that loud? <laughs> I feel like I'm in the cone of silence right now. Right. No, but it's true. And, and it's... The, one of the things that I think they learned a long time ago, and I think it was actually the Aurora program that taught them, right, is that they hide these kinds of programs, whether, whatever it is, whether it's an a ultrasonic weapon or it's some kind of an aircraft that can defy the laws of physics or whatever they're working on. I mean, it's secret, and I believe secrets exist for a reason. You know, there are secrets that we keep for defense and other things, and I, I'm good with that, right? Not everything needs to be free, but the way they hide it is that they'll create a special access program and they'll farm that special access program out to Lockheed. You should probably Lockheed. Right, Star Wars. right. 
and Lockheed is in control of the program. So, you know, they're, they're not necessarily required to report back to Congress or the DOD or pretty much anybody what they're working on. It's all, all that stuff is in a Lockheed vault somewhere. So when they come, you know, and we saw this with Elizondo, what does Elizondo really know? Elizondo really knows nothing. Nobody knows anything. That's the point, right? That's right. But I, I you know, I go at it from a um, point of view of mythos, sure. myth, you know, so I'm reminded I'm the kind of guy, you know, there was a guy, uh, a sculptor, a bohemian oh, artist, you were telling me about his name this. was Alexander Wager, and he lived in Carmel Valley, and um, he was kind of big in the early 60s, he was already an old guy, but he built this house out of all recycled materials. Oh, like an urchin. Um, and um, uh, created, he was a blacksmith, created all his own, own tools to do his sculptures with. Oh, wow. And uh, he had like a following, actually. But he sued the uh, government, the army, uh, because he, they stole his plans for the um, flying saucer. So uh, he developed this uh, thing called the disc copter. Okay. And uh, he uh, thought, uh, and it's patented. I actually have a set of plans. Really? <laughs> now I know what you do on weekends. You build disc copters. <laughs> so uh, um, pretty soon, he also tried to sue a toy company that was making. Really? Uh, because right after the army goes, I'm not interested. We're not interested in your invention, and uh, you, these paintings, these drawings that he made. He was an artist, right? And uh, these futuristic. You're, we're thinking he created these things in the 1930s, and uh, he had these visions of what the future is going to sure. look like. So it's this retro oh, future, yeah. just beautiful art, and. Uh, but he sent it, he, he patented it in the 40s, and then uh, right after the Army said, we're not interested, um, that's when uh, UFOs were first being flying, the flying desks. Well, yeah, they also had that program up in Canada where they were, they were building a, it looked like a disc with, with rotors inside of it. So right, that's or, right, yeah. disc copter. Basically, yeah. So, I, I, so as much as I am for these kind of, I don't know, strange urban legends that fascinate me, it's, it's the people. And later on, we're going to talk about the uh, explorer scientists of the yes. 19th century. Yes. And I just, I, that's the stuff I'm hooked on, these personalities. Sure. And so I went in search of Alexander. I was already, I was doing a film. We were making a film, and it was in Carmel Valley. And I was trying to look up his old studio. And uh, there was two addresses listed, and I went to both of them, and there were just empty fields. Uh, but uh, those are the kind of things that I enjoy, not so much um, the personalities uh, that uh, make history. Well, they're uh, interesting. I they're mean, interesting the, characters. The, the, guy, the guy in... Uh, was at Lincoln City. I mean, he, he built, they say he, he beat the Wright brothers by six months, I think. Oh, Lyman. Yeah, Gilmore Lyman up in Grass Valley. And he was the very first 
<laughs> he was the, he he built the very first airfield. Yes. Uh, in the United States, and was up in Grass Valley, California. It's now at the site of an elementary school with with a huge, mur- beautiful mural dedicated. To yes, Lyman. that's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and there were no airplanes yet. There, yeah. there, that was even before the Wright brothers. I know, no, no airplanes, but he's got an aero. <laughs> he, I think he called it an aerodrome at the time. Yeah, but it's so. That, have you ever seen? It looked like the steam, Spruce Goose. Steam powered. Yes, it was steam powered and had all the amenities. It did. Uh, but it, it, the thing was so large. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, see, there was no what the Wright brothers had over Limar Gildman is. They had documentation. Yes. And, uh, Gil- and, and an audience. And an audience. And uh, Gilmore, uh, supposedly his evidence burned in a fire. Yeah. Somebody, somebody lit his hangar on fire and destroyed the aircraft. Um, but there are photos of it. There I've are. seen them. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and they have that, the mural as well. And it looks like it would never get off the ground. No, but apparently it did. Uh, well, apparently he, it did. He flew it a couple times. Uh, but that he is one of the characters that I'm talking about, that guy. He also invented the rotary snow plow. Oh, wow. And he did do uh, a lot of glider stuff. And uh, he was quite the character. You know what's interesting is that, you know, there are a lot of characters. I mean, when you talk about UAPs, I mean, UFOs, I mean, whatever they call them now. You know, when you talk about that or these lost technologies, there are a lot of really interesting characters. You know, there was a guy, getting back to the UAP thing, there was a guy named Bob Oshler. Do you know, have you ever heard of Bob no, Oshler? No, tell me his story in a nutshell. Okay, you're going to love And then Bob. I'll tell, tell you more. <laughs> okay, deal. So there's this guy. Okay, so one day, uh, this guy named Bobby Ray Inman, who is a former head of the CIA, comes to a guy named Timothy Good. And Timothy Good is another one of these personalities you would love because his actual, the actual occupations of UFO, sorry, UAP, sorry, UFO researchers are very interesting. So Timothy Good wrote this book called Above Top Secret. And it, you know, it was standard reading up through the 90s and the early 2000s. Well, he was actually a violinist. In a, in, an, in a symphony. I think it was actually the London Symphony. So, so Bobby Ray Inman comes to, to Timothy Good and says, hey, hey, Tim, I got the goods for you. The U.S. government wants to disclose everything. Okay? I mean everything. And they, they want to put on a show. And they're going to show the entire world. We got crashed UFOs. We got bodies. We got docu- everything you want. Everything you've searched for your whole life. And he says, gosh, you know, I'm kind of busy. <laughs> I'm a little busy right now. I'm writing another book. I can't really handle this at the moment. Massive disclosure. <laughs> so he says, hey, you should talk to this guy. To, <clears throat> um, you should talk to this other guy, right? So Bobby Randman goes to, to the other guy, and he's, who was a former mission specialist at, at NASA. And if you see Oshler, if you see Oshler, he is the essential, what you would think a UFO researcher looks like. You know, he's, he's balding, a little, a little overweight, chain smoker, massive, massive, massive chain smoker. I mean, every interview I ever saw with him, he must go through an entire pack of cigarettes, this guy. Okay? Right. So he comes, so Bobby Randman comes to Oshler and says, hey, 
I got the goods. And Ashler's like, show me the money. So they set up a meeting, and they bring in Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, right? The Ringling Brothers Circus. With, and they're, they have a whole promo video. And it's called Cosmic Journey. And they're going to have trucks, semi-trucks with trailers filled with crashed UFOs and bodies and all this other stuff, right? Sounds like P.T. Barnum. It's, yeah, that was the idea, right? So, so, so Oshler records the whole thing. He's got all the conversations on cassette. He records everything. So he comes out. And Inman, he's a CIA. He was the head of the CIA. What does Bobby Raymond say? He was an admiral in the Navy. What does he say? That's not me. And they're like, but it is you. And finally goes, okay, that's me, but I was joking. All this promo material, I was joking. So then eventually they set him up and they sent him a, a package from the Guardian, some dude in Canada, of this supposed UFO landing. And he takes it to town. He goes all the way. He's on sightings. He's on every, in the news everywhere. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And then, oh, that was a RCMP, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police helicopter, picking up somebody who, got, who was probably hunting for Bigfoot in the forest and tripped and fell. And boom, destroyed his career. Then later he sold, uh, he sold financial products. But I mean, this guy, I mean, Timothy Good, I mean, really, somebody comes to you, head, former head of the CIA, and says, I'm going to expose the entire <coughs> UFO cover-up. And what do you say? <laughs> busy. Not busy. Sorry about that. All right, now you show me. Okay, so. You're uh, just going to be better. No, it's not going to be better necessarily. <laughs> I'm, I'm changing the subject, actually. I'm going to oh, talk about uh, the Table Mountain oh, Mystery. Let's do it. All right. So uh, that is a personality from everything you've described. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into the. So anyway, I think it was like in the early 90s, this guy, Michael Cremo, came up here snooping around Table Mountain. And what he did was he ended up renewing a controversy that began in the 1860s and was thought of as resolved in 1913. But here it is, 1990s, and he's stirring it up. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the local historical society, after he left a few months, they had their own uh, meeting, lecture on the subject. Really? Um, debunking, or trying to. Yeah, I read uh, there are some people that, <laughs> that have attempted to debunk this. So uh, it, it was this guy's theory. Um, in 1968, he was at a Grateful Dead concert. And a Hare Krishna guy came over and handed him a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Now, that is a great way to start a okay. story. And he took it to heart. So, when, uh, in, uh, you know, the Hindu religion uh, goes by these tremendous uh, epochs of time called yugas. Yeah. And it's like millennia goes the, by, the right? And uh, they rotate. And it goes right in with that whole 60s things, life, structure, death, you know. Um, but over these, so he believed that man's been around for billions of years. Well, I mean, according to the Vedas, basically we have. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this guy makes it his mission in life that he's going to go around and find these out-of-place artifacts that proves his point. So before you go any further, when I studied archaeology, we studied this. 
and they were called temporal, temporal erratics. <laughs> we call them, in the, in the business, we call them oomparts. Oomparts? <laughs> yeah, out of place uh, artifacts. I like uh, yours more. <laughs> Damn, Davis. Uh, so uh, the controversy revolves around in, 18, in the early 1860s, uh, these relics, fossils, and artifacts that were found near in or under Table Mountain. Um, and according to this guy uh, that they found, uh, and he, he, he did his homework in a way, but I, I think his whole thing was set up like with a misconception of uh, interpreting the original source material. And so in the uh, geology of California, and now we're getting into the good stuff that I, I think of this. Uh, 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 Hosea uh, Whitney, he was the first geologist in California. And um, he, uh, he documented these finds, that, these relics that had been found. And so Michael came looking. So now we go back to the very beginning of the controversy, uh, 1860. Actually, earlier than that. Let's start in 1850. No, let's start in 1840. So in 1840, Just keep going back. in 1840, if you were going to get an education and wanted to become a scientist, well, you, you actually couldn't do that. So the best next thing was become a medical doctor. Right. If you wanted to become a scientist or something, you had to go to Europe and study with those guys over there in London and France and stuff. So uh, there was this guy, Perez Schnell, and he got an education as a medical doctor, Dr. Schnell. Okay. And uh, he became an army field doctor. And the reason why he did that is because they'd send them all to the outposts of nowhere, right? Sure. And he could do his scientific studies. Yeah. All right. So um, he retired in 1850. And where did he head? To California and the gold mines. Of course. Okay. And he settled here in Tuolumne County. They have a street named after him, Dr. Preshnell. And he was a very stereotypical, the archetypical image of the explorer scientist. And uh, he came here in 1850 and hung up his shingle. And there was a lot of activity. Uh, when when uh, Whitney came through here um, 10 years later in 1860, actually him and uh, Schnell became good friends because they were cut of the same cloth. But um, uh, he had this wonderful collection. Back in those days, these early scientists, they would have they're cabinets of curiosity. And right. these are things that they found in the field in their explorations. And they later on became the basis of museums. Sure. They just opened these cabinets uh, to the public. And the cabinet is a misnomer. I mean, there could be rooms. In Schnell's case, there was. There was rooms of these artifacts. Really? That, that much? Uh, the collection was so famous that Josiah Whitney in his survey, uh, Geological Survey of California, eight volume set, he, he, he devotes um, uh, pages um, talking about Schnell's collection. 
Wow. So what happens is this guy comes in 1850 and is real curious. And, and, and what's happening? All the miners are digging up everything. They're digging the dirt, dirt down to bedrock, right? So they're, fi- they're not just finding gold. They're finding all kind of stuff. Over there where now the Columbia um, Gold Rush trailer park is on your way to Columbia. Yeah. I passed it many times. Uh, okay, they found pits of mastodon bones. So many mastodon really? bones that they, by the wagon loads. By the wagon loads. By the wagon loads, okay? Wow. And uh, they identified mastodons, um, uh, horses, camels. Uh, oh, that's right. There were a lot of camels here. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, this was them. the uh, origin place of the camels. And and then they can't went extinct here, but it yeah, appeared other places. Sure. Uh, so um, they were finding all that kind of stuff too. So Dr. Schnell had about the largest collection of uh, fossils and rocks and stuff. And then so here's the state geologist coming in. He just loves that stuff, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's Dr. Schnell. Now, we need to say something about Whitney. You, you know, uh, you ever read the book, Sir Arthur Cothen, Colin Doyle's The Lost World? Yeah. And they, and they had that uh, Professor Challenger. Oh, right. And he was like the short-tempered, irascible, you know, like everybody like hated him, but still admired him because of his genius. He was just this forceful character. Yeah, he was a, and, he was uh, a force of nature. Yeah, he was a force of nature. And these are the people that we're talking about. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, his motto, he actually made a little coat of arms for himself, and it was really? like the tent and the stuff of geology and surveying. <laughs> and, uh, he had a motto, huh? <laughs> and the motto was, it was in Latin, but the translation was something like, takes his hammer to cut open the rocks to find uh, primeval monsters. Or something like that, right? Okay. I mean, he was way into the geology scene. Sure. So he graduated from Yale and then went over to Europe and studied geology and stuff over there in Europe. So got an education. So when he came back, Harvard opened their Department of Geology as him as the head. Okay. okay? Now, California, what was going on was the gold rush and the state that has never been surveyed and the state wants to know where their mineral riches are, okay? Sure. They want a survey of this that hasn't been done. So they hire uh, the guy that had the most status was uh, Whitney. And so they hired him to put together a survey team and survey the state of California. So is he who, is, is Mount Whitney? Named? That's right, Mount Whitney, uh, that's the highest point. Oh, this is how much he thought of himself. And maybe it was a member of his uh, survey party. He also came out with this guy named William uh, Brewer, kind of important uh, in this whole scene as well. It's just these, these characters. Um, uh, Sir Arthur Colin Doyle, with his character, Professor Challenger, said that his inspiration was Percy Fawcett, the guy that went right. out looking for Z. Z. 
And you know, it's curious. And disappeared in the jungle. And disappeared in the jungle in 1928. Right. That book came out in 1913. He'd, he'd already been to Amazon surveying yeah, I think it. Was it. The third, I think it was his third attempt. Yeah, so um, uh, he was like the last of these uh, kind of 19th century, old-timey. Charles uh, Verney. Kind yeah, of, uh, kind of characters. Sure. And what was curious about him is now they're finding out he was partially right or he was right. There's ancient civilizations all over there there in the Amazon. They just got covered up by the jungles. But now because of deforestation and the LIDAR systems where they can see down, they had these great civilizations. I mean, they had it down. They had the fish hatcheries. I mean, they had this production thing going. They created this special kind of soil. They realize now that the Amazon jungle itself is artificial. Is yeah, kind of artificial. What they did was manage the garden so well right. they created this rainforest. Yeah, I forget what the soil is called, but the, it, it, it has a special. It, soil. Yeah, no, it's terra negra, black That's dirt. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's they invented it. It's they invented natural. it, and it's not natural. And uh, they we can't quite figure out how to reproduce it, but it's no. like the most fertile soil Ever. there is. And they actually one of the interesting things about the Terra Negra is that it it actually has these microsp- microscopic spheres that are embedded within it, and nobody can figure out what the spheres are for. Yeah, so it's just like this amazing stuff, right? So he's partially right. And we're going to find Whitney, Hosea Whitney. He was partially right himself. It's just that nobody went back and actually re-looked at the evidence um, and uh, tried to uh, reinterpret it. And it was that Cremo guy kind of relit things. And so now now you can look at it in a different way. Not necessarily the way he does, no. but it renewed thought about the pro- uh, process. So what they started finding is these artifacts um, that supposedly were out of place. So they're finding all these mastodon bones and stuff like that, but uh, they're also finding these um, ancient tools, right? Right. I read that. Uh, ladles, ladles. Uh, mortars and pestles, uh, platters right. with like designs etched in them, uh, collections of these beautiful hammers, hammers yeah. these beautiful long spear points. Well, actually, the spear points are very interesting because I was reading that the spear points they found are actually of a Clovis style. <clears throat> that may not mean anything to anybody, but if you've, if you've studied paleoarchaeology, the Clovis are a, a mysterious group that, that occupied North America, um, and they vanished. And there's, there's literally no bodies. Like, they've never found a Clovis body ever, but they're known for their, their spear points. And if the fact that there was a Clovis spear point found in Tuolumne County under Table Mountain is completely bizarre because you don't find them here. See, now... The- what ends up happening with this controversy is you end up having the questions of the origin of man and right. the geologic record, uh, uh, the way it has been interpreted up till now. Yeah, because wasn't the, the stuff they were finding, the stratigraphy for it was something like, it was like 55 million years old. It was like Pliocene. Yeah, but see, that's, there's a problem there with how this stuff was interpreted. Okay. okay? 
and how Table Mountain itself was formed. Right. So if it, uh, there's probably a lot of people that uh, don't understand about Table Mountain. Originally, Brewer and Whitney had a discussion about this. Um, so uh, Brewer set forth the thing, it's an inverted landscape. One thing that is true is that it is most, one of the most rarest geological features in the world. I can only think of two other places, and I looked it up, uh, that have something similar to it. And what happened is there were some volcanoes up there where Sonora Pass is, and they started going off. And they started uh, you know, coming downhill. And okay, here's, here's like the easiest to digest version, the one that I was taught originally was that um, it displaced the Stanislaus River, the lava coming down, the lava and mud okay. coming down. And uh, so um, the river actually changed its course and the uh, lava filled where the river was. And then over the thousands of years, the surrounding material, because the latite, the lava, it's hard to erode, but everything else around it eroded. So what you have is a perfect mold of the ancient Stanislaus River. Okay. So sometimes it spreads apart, sometimes it, it gets small, down. and it runs for 65 miles. Okay? That's a lot of sense. Um, uh, but... Whitney says that couldn't have been unless there was a rise, sudden rise in the Sierra Nevadas, a lift, because the erosion couldn't happen in that amount of time. And they, they were kind of both true. So what ends up happening is it wasn't just one volcano went off. Um, it, was, it was a series of volcanic activities over the years, over the thousands of years. And uh, it slowly filled up um, because you go up to Butte County and they may call it part of the Table Mountain system, but I don't see it. I mean, there's lava caps. I know people up, living up in Confidence, they live on the lava cap. So what it is is like this series of eruptions that sent out lava and it started like maybe 55,000. And then they started talking about the tertiary Right. Era. That's an obsolete term, and it meant anywhere from 65,000 years ago to 2.8 million years ago. I mean, 65 million years ago to 2.8 million years ago. That, that term is meaningless, and they haven't used it since the 1840s, you know? I mean, did you know that they changed the... Uh, that's why I don't like to talk about periods. Uh, well, that's well, kind of an embarrassing question. They, topic. Anyway. They no, they constantly change. Uh, but... So Whitney and them people were working off the geologic calendar that had been developed in the 1840s. Right, which is way obsolete. Um, today, uh, we're working off the one that was actually formed in 1991, uh, uh, the last time they well, had a major change in it. But since that time, everything has happened. So you start questioning if those artifacts were truly found up underneath these gold-bearing gravels of an ancient riverbed that had been there for 55 million years. But see, the volcano that ended up covering what we call Table Mountain there in Jamestown, 
just went off between seven and 10 million years ago. But still, seven to 10 million years. I mean, <clears throat> to find a mortar and pestle that's in stratigraphy. Well, right? the thing gets even more complicated I, than that. I should mention that, that this notion, you know, this is pretty, it's an interesting thing because even in, the, in Tanzania, in the, the Rift Valley where Olduvai is where they found Lucy, that, is a, that has a thrust fault. And so not far from where they found the Lucy's Australopithecine, you can actually find, um, it was a mud flat, and you can actually find within a half, I think it was a half or a quarter mile apart, there's human footprints that were embedded in the mud and then covered, and dinosaur footprints. And some people believe that that, that indicates that dinosaurs and humans walk together. But in reality, it's caused because of a thrust fault where the earth is thrusting up and the stratigraphy doesn't match, which sounds like this situation. Well, no, they, they ended up going more with Brewers than Whitney's. Okay. Uh, it was just a series of uh, lava flows that built up over time. And then the Stanislaus River that had been diverted washed away a lot of the debris from the older ones. And, the, and our section of Table Mountain uh, that probably runs from Jamestown. It, it, it ends before you hit Night Ferry. Um, but the spectacular views of that section, you go to Lake Tulloch or... Uh, oh, yeah. Or, it's, it's impressive. Just, yeah, it is impressive. And it, it's just a unique geological feature. And um, Yeah, so when they, when they would mine it, so it's my understanding that when they mined it, they went in under and went up. Okay, they tried every which way but loose on this stuff. You're <laughs> okay. right. The original idea was to go from where the lava ends into the alluvial gravels right. up underneath until they hit um, pay dirt, right? Right. Uh, but then they, uh, they ended up going straight down. They, they just mined it every which way. Did you know the Harvard mine? Do you know why it's called the Harvard mine? Because that's where Whitney had a chair of geology. <laughs> okay. uh, he owned the mine. All right. Okay? Um, quite a personality. He was quite the personality. That was the largest producer of gold ever in the world. Wow. That Harvard mine. That section of table, Mount, yeah, he knew where he the knew good where stuff was. <laughs> but uh, they didn't close that mine down until 1994. Wow. And uh, you can go to Ironstone Vineyards, and they have encased in this bulletproof glass. Yes. Have you seen it? I've seen it. A piece it. of fan gold that weighs 44 pounds. But the formation of it is so rare, so uh, right. it was quite impressive. All right, so they're, so they're tunneling through this thing every which way but loose. Right, and they start finding these things. Right. Okay, now what was the downfall of Whitney and why he got embarrassed and why things didn't work is because this man was just an obstinate SOB. <laughs> okay. Okay, now I'll tell you one, uh, he got into one controversy after another because of his loud mouth and his, he wouldn't suffer fools in his way or the highway. I will tell in his defense, He's the first one to come up with the notion of the national park. Really? And he also wrote the standards, uh, which later on became the UC system. He works with John Sweet. And, uh, and he also published the first book on the Yosemite Valley, way before John Muir even came around. He was quite the guy. Uh, he was quite the guy. But 
when John Muir did come around, he was a better writer. And um, it be, he became nationally known. Sure. And, uh, and it was John Muir's uh, assertion. Uh, Whitney said it was because of the uplifting right. uh, over some fault line or something. <clears throat> Muir said, no, this has been glaciated. It was a glacier. And uh, publicly in print, he called uh, Muir an ignoramus sheep herder. <laughs> okay? okay? For doing that. But then his survey party, his survey in the eight volumes that he produced um, took him 15 years uh, to do so. And uh, so he finds, he says, there are no glaciers. What are you talking about glaciers? And then he finds one. It's called Whitney Glacier, the, the largest and longest glacier in California. It was the first glacier to be identified in the United States. And uh, it's there by Mount Shasta. And, uh, but he wouldn't apologize to Muir. He wouldn't apologize to Muir. Although uh, Muir asked him to become one of the founding members of the Sierra Club because they both were into saving Yosemite. Sure. Yeah, so you know, make friends with uh, even your enemies, I guess. But he would do that to everybody. Works. He lost his funding arguments uh, with the legislator, and they were paying him well, the state of California. So they, the state of California wanted um, definitive maps of the mines, the mining regions, you know, where are our mineral wealth here in our state? You know, the first two volumes of uh, the geology of California was paleontology, <laughs> okay? And he just loved, and, he, and at that time, Tuolumne County was the center uh, that was before. When did they discover the... Uh, oh, and then he got into an argument about the oil guy, too, and what ended up with the tar pits down there in Los Angeles. That, that became... But that, they didn't get into that until, like, 1901 or something. Uh, so this was the center of Fossil City uh, here in Tuolumne County. See, again, you know, you have no idea. Like, you well, walk around, you have no idea that there's that much, you know, paleontological research here, that, that many. No, you're right. You uh, nobody no realizes that. I've driven past that, that trailer park a thousand times. And yeah. I had no idea. Oh, that was a mastodon bone storage yard. And it eventually burned down like everything does. Well, Dr. Yeah. Perez's collection. Oh, yeah, we need to get back to that. Okay, now his collection was so extensive. Oh, and then he had some really curiosities. All the miners loved and trusted this guy. Sure. All right. Um, he probably treated him. Well, he yeah, he was a doctor, and um, uh, so if they had uh, boo boos, they go they go to him, right? Of course. And uh, but they used to bring him things that they found while digging for gold. And I don't know if you found. Uh, I told you about the one find um, there. It was on um, Blanket Creek. And it's over by, kind of by Jamestown. It was, it's kind of where it's off of Sanguinetti Road, sort of. Okay. And the, the place is still there. But they were digging there, and they found a partial skeleton, a full skull, but a partial skeleton of a person that had to, a giant. Okay, uh, when Perez uh, Schnell examined the uh, skull, Dr. Schnell, uh, he estimated it to be at least three times bigger than what a normal human 
um, skull a day. You know, you know, it's interesting that you mention that because it's it's not Tuolumne County, but it's not far. That the the those walls that we talked about before, the Ohlone believed that they were built by giants, and they actually found the skeleton of one of the giants in Concord, California, in like nineteen nineteen oh five. So they they found they have found legit seven to eight foot tall, you know, skeletons in a variety of places in Northern California. And there's apparently a mega complex of structures of these walls that spread from Fresno all the way to the Oregon border. And they actually create rings of, of these, these uh, walls. Well, I still live by one. I grew up like in that area. So well, they, they, they ring the mountains. So they, they ring Shasta. They ring Shastina. They ring Mount Diablo. They ring... We used to go up on top of Mount Diablo fossil hunting. Oh, yeah, it's good for that. We used to find all the shell sandwiches. I found a little tip of a tusk. I had my own, when I was a little kid, I had my, uh, except for it wasn't called Cabinet Curiosities, it was called a uh, cigar box. Yes. uh, Full of my artifacts. Shell ridges, it was the bottom of an ocean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but they, you know, there there is some evidence that. This and it actually goes to the, their Yurok legends about Shasta, but there is apparently some kind of civilization that existed here, and there were seven and eight foot tall humans that were a part of it. Yeah, I was surprised so that surprised. those uh, no, that those walls because I remember those walls not being that tall. Well, the thing is, it's that, under yeah, it's all underground. Yeah, they're about they're about three or four feet yeah. off the ground. But if you dig down, they go down about another four feet. Yeah, that's what I uh, in Tilden, after understood. Yeah, in Tilden, they actually have a segment of one of the walls. And again, these walls run from Fresno to the Oregon border. But they in Tilden, there's a, they have oak trees, and there was an acorn that fell down into the, the wall. And the tree grew up and split the wall in half. But the, the tree is enormous. I mean, it's a, it's a couple feet in diameter. And, it, and the wall was bifurcated by this thing growing out of it. So it tells you how old it is. Yeah, we, there was walls around where I grew up oh, yeah. in East Bay. Mm-hmm. Although the thing that fascinated was was what we called the secret sidewalk. And it was the water system that oh, the sure. Mission Fathers put in. Yeah. Uh, and that was part Mission San Jose. Yeah. And what was really cool how sophisticated was they had hot and cold running water because they'd bring in the hot water from Warm Springs. Oh, right. Uh, so that's pretty good. But, but yeah, so, I mean, the fact that they found this, this giant skeleton up here, you know, it's, it's not, people may think, oh, well, that's bizarre. It's actually not. No, not, especially California, there's several. There's a, yeah, there's a number of them, even um, toward Shasta. But what was fascinating about this is a partial skeleton with the full skull, but underneath him they found uh, bones of, of people. Just human bones. Okay. And, well, I don't know if the giant is human or not, but, I mean, normal size. Right. What uh, you'd human, expect. Yeah, what you expect, bones. And so <laughs> speculate on that. Was that a Bigfoot cannibal thing? Well, isn't the story go uh, that these things were cannibals? Oh, the Bigfoot? Yeah, and they, up there in Nevada, how they finally got rid of them is they got, um, they burned them out of the cave. They set fire to the cave. Yeah, I'd heard that. And uh, you heard that story? Well, I had heard the, the cannibal part. And the, 
some people believe that, that there, so there are, in forests in general, there's an incredibly large number of people that disappear. And it, it's to a point where the National Park Service, you know, they, they, they have their own classification system, like classified, top secret, whatever. They classify and restrict all the documentation about people who disappear in national parks. Uh, Paulides talks about this. And th there's no explanation, and the National Park Service will not discuss it. And there are people that do believe that the Bigfoot are, are hunting people and taking them. And there was actually a kid, I forget, I, I want to say it was like six or seven years old, that he disappeared while his family was hiking in a national forest not too far from him. And uh, they found him 14 miles away. And he said that he got separated from his family, he got lost, and that Bigfoot carried him 14 miles. But there, there are people who do believe that those disappearances are, are Bigfoot's hunting people. Yeah, you know. I don't know if I believe that, but it's. And it's also what? It. What was this? Now I, t uh, you bring up this, and it's document. I have newspaper clippings, or scans of newspaper clippings, uh, about uh, this event that the bones that they found in 1855, and uh, and then you talk to a Bigfoot uh, first researcher, and they say, oh yeah, that's evidence of Bigfoot. But then um, uh, there's this whole other giant lore. Well, yeah, but I mean, it, to me, all the, all the evidence that I've ever seen about these giants is not Bigfoot, that the, these giants are, are normal. They're effectively normal humans. Well, no, some, a lot of them, the ones they found in Catalina Island supposedly had yeah, double rows of teeth. Okay, well, that, the Catalina thing is a whole different discussion, <laughs> right? But a lot of the ones that they've, I'll say a lot of the ones that they've found, they are like a, a normal modern human, which in and itself is a little strange, but they're ginormous. I mean, they're really huge. And there, there are some beliefs that go back to the Yurok and Shasta, you know, and the, and the Wage, the, their notion of the Wage, which were these people who lived on Shasta that came down from the top of Shasta and taught the Yurok and possibly the Klamath, um, how, to, how to hunt and, and what food you can eat and how to forage. And then one day they, just, they said that they had to leave. And I, actually, I heard this from a Yurok woman. She told me the story, and they said, well, one day they had to leave, and they were going to go north because their friends and their families were north, and they missed them. So they came off of Shasta, and they went north, and they, they were very tall, like eight feet tall, and that they left uh, one guy behind. And he was the speaker to animals. And he could actually talk to animals. And then eventually he, he got sad and he missed his friends. So he goes north. So then years later, the Spaniards are coming. And they, they're coming on their ships. And the Yurok see them out in the ocean. And they see the brown of the ships and the white of the sails. And they call them the Wagesh, the children of the Wage. And they thought that the Wage were coming home on, on a floating islands. And then they come ashore and they massacred the Yurok and the rivers ran red with blood and there's a whole mythos about that as well. But a lot of people trace these giants back to the Wage. But they definitely, no, you, they found a number of them. And they, they, 
I'm sure you'll get to that, but they, they all seem to end up in the same place. Yeah, here are the... No, uh, nowhere that you can access it. Central Sierra Miwok uh, mythos is there was a first world people. Right. And uh, they uh, died out because of a flood. And uh, The Wage lived on the top of Shasta. Uh, they lived on top of the mountain because, because of, of the flood. flood. And then they were too hungry up there, wanted to come down when they saw the water receding, but got stuck in the mud. And then the ravens came and sat on their heads, and the ravens became the new people. Um, That's the way the story goes. But they were giants. Um, Some of them. uh, The giants that lived up here were the Yaya Lee. But, you know, I would think, even though gorillas hadn't been discovered yet by the 1860s, um, they, I think uh, Dr. Schnell would have noticed the uh, sagittal crest well, not just up that. top. It's, or it's their, whole, their whole physiology is completely different. Yeah. Their bone structure is completely different. If it, it, I would assume as a medical doctor, you know, as trained as he was, I, I think he could probably tell the difference between a human and some kind of a great ape. Yeah, but the great apes hadn't been described yet, identified and described. They also don't live here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then that would be something in itself, too. You're right. But I would think, I would think that if it was a, a Bigfoot or a Yaya Lee, I would think that he would be able to see that the the anatomy is slightly different. That it's not a human anatomy is is not is compared to a gigantopithecine, which is what right. a lot of people think Bigfoot is. A human skeleton is different. I mean, the size of the molars is astronomical. It's and then here we get into the thing is, what is human and what isn't human? Right. I mean, an ape can uh, knock two rocks together to cut, cut well, a sure. nut. Some, some chimps, you know? some chimpanzees. Um, the great apes and the orangutans and stuff, they can braid and weave. They well, make they, hammocks to sleep in the trees. Well, they, the chimpanzees, they will actually use sticks as tools, term, that's to right. But then you can uh, a, a raven can figure that out. Uh, they've run tests where a raven had learned to put three straws together to reach the treat, and uh, they tested well, out. We don't give animals enough. higher than a ten-year-old. <laughs> okay, and and this is gets to the crust of the thing. If they found these out-of-place artifacts that shouldn't be there, right. Um, and then you have to reinterpret uh, the whole time scale. Right. So they say that man developed in Africa 200,000 years ago. Right. Okay. And they didn't migrate here to North America until um, the 17,000 years ago. Right. Okay. Well. And they came in three waves. Um, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense because uh, they just uh, a few years back they found this what is the Certe Mastodon site, where um, uh, they date that at 120,000 years ago. Right, and that would have come. With, that's actually why. So that's the timeline's way off. Well, sure. I mean, they were following the mastodons and. The, and the the, uh, the other animals across the, the Bering Land Bridge. So um, uh, then even on the other side of the rift, you're talking about the African rift. Oh, um, 
Uh, they found uh, uh, these uh, real sophisticated look napped stone axes. Sure. And they were four million years old. Well, I mean, you just go no further than the Vedas and the whole stories about that cataclysmic war in the Vedas. So I mean, that was a that was a hundred thousand years ago. But what was Whitney's downfall was his arrogance and uh, self confidence, uh, because oh, did you need to take a little break? Well, no, it's I got to do a station identification. We're on okay. KAADLP one zero three. Point five FM Sonora. Yeah, that's right. We're here at KWD. <laughs> and actually, Yahoo! it is 11 o'clock, so we do normally take a All break right. here. So. And then we'll talk about the Caliver Skull yes. and how that uh, was kind of Whitney's downfall and a reinterpretation, a current reinterpretation of Whitney's finds. Okay. We'll, okay. Be, we'll be back in about 20 minutes.
Okay, you're listening to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki. I'm here with Dave Allen. We're on KAADLP 103.5 FM out here in Sonora, uh, Sonora, California. And we were talking about some weirdness of Table Mountain. So let's get back to it. So when uh, Whitney and his surveying party came out here to California, it was in 1860. And uh, as soon as he got out here, it was the great flood of 1860, 1861. That's good and what uh, Dr. Schnell uh, claimed to fame was is he accurately measured the rainfall that happened up here, which uh, it was the most in recorded history uh, in, for California. Oh, wow. And it's what you had to take a boat from Sonora to Columbia. Really? And uh, yeah, oh. it just wiped out everything. Okay, so they suffered through that. And uh, Dr. Schnell's uh, collection of curiosities, Cabinet of Curiosities, survived that. Really? And uh, unfortunately, um, a few years later, um, he started the scientific... So here's the thing of these people's cabinets, and they want to make them into the museum. Uh, Whitney really had a desire to start uh, the UC system so he could uh, get his collection... uh, in uh, as a, a state-sponsored museum. Sure. Uh, that didn't happen until way much later, uh, but he was the uh, president of the California Academy of Sciences. And, uh, but anyway, Dr. Schnell's collection, he formed the Tuolumne County Scientific Society, okay. and they were starting to take inventory of his collection to uh, turn it into the Tuolumne County Museum. Okay. Uh, there was a fire, and the entire collection burned. Okay? Everything was destroyed. That's awful. And uh, so, uh, Whitney's wanting to make a presentation to, uh, he's going all over. He's going to the National Academy of Sciences. He's uh, going over to Cambridge and stuff, and he, he wants to present his finds about California, right? Okay. And he's obsessed with this... Uh, um, the uh, gold gravel man, you know, that... Oh, uh, right, the, the skeleton that they had found. Uh, okay, but uh, here's the truth of the matter. So when he's uh, putting together his book and trying to get documentation going, uh, Dr. Chanel's collection had burned down. Well, they had lent out a lot of the stuff, and so he's going around to, the, like, uh, Cambridge University and stuff uh, looking for these artifacts... Uh, that had been lent out because a lot of them had been destroyed in the big fire. The Smithsonian as well. The Smithsonian and that Cremo guy did um, try to get in touch with the Smithsonian. They couldn't find. They never can. Uh, they couldn't find it and uh, the collection. Uh, but there, there is photographs. One thing about Whitney, uh, you know, this is 1860s and the, he was taking pictures. He put out the first picture book. It was on Yosemite Valley, and this was a few years before John Muir did his. Oh, and wow. it was photographs. It was 10 bucks a copy, so that was a lot that's, of money back in them money. days. <laughs> and then he put out one with woodcuts for the common man. And it wasn't, uh, it was the geology, but it was a promotional thing. He was trying to save Yosemite. And okay. he did a lot of camping up in there. Okay, so anyway, he's trying to find what's left of these collections. 
Now, come to find out, the only things that were actually found in situ or, you know, in that clay stuff uh, that uh, actually that these scientists witnessed coming out of these mines was uh, they found at the Harvard mine those um, uh, artifacts with the the spear points. They found a uh, bead. A, uh, and the guy f- at first identified it as alabaster, but it was some kind of white marble okay. and uh, granite, white granite and uh, marble. And it was a perfectly made bead with a hole in the middle and everything. That must have been incredible. And uh, yeah, I mean, and they also found a lower jaw that uh, measured uh, five and a half inches from what they call carbuncle to carbuncle. That's and um, yeah, I'm thinking is that's, I, that's bigger that's than really big. normal. Yeah. Okay. And uh, all the other stuff that was found supposedly in these ancient gravels, okay, and uh, were found by other people. Schnell personally found something, and uh, so did uh, actually it was the superintendent of the mine of the Harvard mine uh, at that time, and the other stuff was found. So uh, by other people and stuff. So uh, Whitney wants to prove his point, and this is the story of the Calavera skull. So Whitney ends up getting punked, uh, getting pranked, okay? And and you can see why the guy is not a very likable guy. Well, it it did happen a lot back then. Uh, And uh, Tuolumne County was known for people getting punked. If you could pull a prank... And, and that is a identifier. This is a personal trait of this area. Is these kind of, not mean pranks, but uh, I can give you a list of famous pranks. The Drake's Plate, yes. uh, Sir Francis Drake. It was the Clampers that, and that of Tuolumne County that, yeah, uh, per, the uh, that planted the plate, right. Uh, so we yes. have this history going this back is- from... That's, super, that's a super... Yeah, we, that could be a whole story in oh, itself. Yeah. Um, because there, there is some weirdness in, in Drake's Bay, but... Yeah. That play, the, the pranking of the play. Right, and you can go up right now to the uh, Rancheria, and uh, there's a big boulder, and is this little plaque that is a completely reproduction of the hoax plaque. Oh, they did the hoax plaque, too. Um, yeah, but it was... Bill Fuller, William Fuller, uh, who was president of the land settlement cases here in California. He was a clamper. And uh, um, revoking Sir Francis Drake's right uh, over the lands of California as head of the Indians of California. And, uh, yeah, it's too much to get into, but, I mean, you're right. Tuolumne County is just so filled with uh, so much weirdness. So they find this skull over in Calaveras, and he says it comes from this certain strata uh, of the mine as they were digging. And so he takes that to present. Well, that's, it just starts this controversy right away. But unlike what Cremo, you read what Whitney said when he made his presentations on this skull that turned out to be a fake. But um, uh, why did he choose that as his evidence? One was a lot of the stuff had been destroyed. Another thing is that 
it was the most well-preserved piece. I mean, sure. if you're, it's mastodon bones are thick and huge. You can find those easily, but re, human remains, um, all they found was a top of a skull and a bottom jaw. Okay, these other things were found other places. And so when he got possession of the Calaveras skull, it was like almost perfectly preserved, the whole skull, you know? So that's what he presented as evidence. But even when he presented that as evidence, he estimated it to be 2.5 to 5 million years ago, okay? That's no 30, uh, 65 million years ago. That isn't how he presented the evidence. But it became controversial. Uh, this oh, all the finds in Tuolumne. I mean, this is when most people outside the scientific world still believe that God created man 6,000 years ago, you know? And, uh, and here's this guy saying, hey, I found evidence of um, human activity two and a half million years ago, I mean, that's, okay? That's way outside of accepted practice. Anyway. Right. And, um, uh, but he presented the Calavera skull. And there's one paper after another in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, Bret Hart wrote that famous poem about the Calavera skull, and it was about how the miners pranked the intellectuals, the uh, city-fied boys, or... Um, you know, the professors. Right. And um, it, finally, by 1913, the controversy was put to rest that this skull was only about a 1,000 years old, and, uh, and that was the end of the story. But it's not quite the end of the story. See, Cremo stirred up something, because what ends up happening is if you have a close examination of what Whitney actually said, and um, it's not really, he's more right than wrong because they keep pushing the date back on, uh, they say man's 200,000 years old, uh, yet in the, right over the other side of the hill, they're finding these complicated tools that were dated 3.5 million. They say that the Devisonian, a cave they found in Siberia. They weren't supposed to be, people weren't supposed to be there yet. They find this big workshop where they're making these beautiful pieces of art. Mm -hmm. You ever seen that bracelet? It looks like jay, but it's some kind of other green stone. Right. And it looks as modern as can be. Perfect uh, marble ring, you know, that's just like polished to the T and stuff. Oh, and, sure. and they date that at 190,000 years ago, okay? Which is off any academic scale. They're right, just, right. Yeah. And now they're finding uh, human activity in San Diego uh, that dates at 130,000 years ago, okay? Um, I mean, and they says man wasn't even supposed to enter um, the uh, North American continent until, what, 17,000 years ago? Yeah, about then. Um, so what, what is this? See, so there has to be, as well, new yeah. evidence comes in, uh, you have to reevaluate. But it's, I mean, that goes with the Clovis. They, they always, the Clovis, 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 but there's no bodies. You know, we talked about that before. Right. Clovis, 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 you know, the, everything's descended from the Clovis, but there's no bodies. How can you not have bodies? So, 
if Whitney found um, uh, either modern man, because that's what the Calaveras skull, it was modern man. Right. Turns out he was punk. Right. But the uh, jaw bones and the artifacts and stuff that were found, and he estimated them to be about 2.5 million years old. And the last, the last lava flow that actually capped, they call it the cap, uh, was about 1.5 million years ago. Um, uh, so where did they find, they ended up doing like open pit mining. That Harvard mine is just this toxic wasteland dump. There were some people that went scuba diving a few years back and they lasted about 20 minutes and died. Uh, okay. <laughs> the, the water is that poisoned. And uh, the only obligation, and then they donate, when the miners pull out, the mining corporation, they were from Canada, they pulled out, they donated, graciously donated the oh, land to the county. So kind. Toxic waste dump. But they are under obligation to keep the water level down because Lake Tulloch is right there, you know. Sure. Uh, but that was the largest producer of gold in the world. And apparently artifacts. And, uh, and these artifacts. So what I'm saying is what Whitney said really isn't that far-fetched. Cremo took it to the limit. I mean, that guy. And he really wasn't listening to what Whitney was actually presenting and saying. What Whitney's conclusion was is that man coexisted with these prehistoric animals, uh, the mastodons and stuff. Uh, they lived together. Okay, and um, uh, that shook the science world up. Well, of course. Uh, now it doesn't seem very far-fetched, does it? I mean, no, because uh, no, there's evidence to the contrary. Well, but, I mean, if they're finding mastodon kill sites down in San Diego, sure. you know, and that the whole timeline that everything came out of Africa. Oh, and you know what's real interesting? You know, the little hobbit. Uh, kind of proto-human type, the uh, forensius or... Afarensis. Okay, there you go. And uh, the local Miwok uh, legends uh, have the Sika, which are these little, little beings. I think a lot of those legends are like trace memories of, that they pass down. Well, what's, what's interesting about that, though, is that, you know, those, the, the notion of the little people, that exists... Everywhere. I mean, in, in Ireland, you know, in Scotland and in Europe, they call them the, the Tatha de Danan. But, you know, in the Polynesians had the same thing, the, the Menuhuni. The Klamath actually believed that outside of Klamath Falls, there's a, a huge rectangular reservoir that's apparently naturally occurring, but it's perfectly rectangular. And the Klamath believed that that was built in a single night by the little people that came and they dug it out. And there, actually, David Hatcher Childress talks about a lost city of the little people outside of Klamath Falls. So the, these, this notion of, of s small statured humans is, I mean, it's everywhere. So, uh, I mean, you can actually speculate that even uh, they say, you know, like all these different uh, um, hominid, hominid types um, living together in Africa why wasn't that occurring other places? Uh, why does it halt uh, Africa? Everything's so well preserved because uh, it's so dry and well. Well preserved is relative. I mean, they, yeah. 
the skeletons are pretty trash. No, I know. All they could actually find under Table Mountain when it finally came down to it, what was authentic, was a jawbone yeah. and some beads and some think, spear points. I think Aparensis, Lucy, Australopithecus Aparensis, I think it's, it's like 30%. Yeah. Um, so there's some ribs, there's a jaw, there's teeth, but not much else. Uh, so uh, Whitney's assertion that um, hominids were living here and coexisting uh, just like any place else on this earth. I, I don't know. They hadn't found those uh, bison paintings in the cave in France yet, had they? Oh, no. when, when was that? That was in the 20s? 20s or the 30s. Yeah, something like that. But uh, they had already found evidence of man in Europe, uh, I don't know, maybe 20,000 years ago. Well, I mean, or, and the, I'm the, talking about the 1860s. And then there's, there's the betas. You know, the, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have I not drunk of soma juice? <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they talk about a cataclysmic war that according to the Vedas happened like 100, I want to say it was like 150,000 years ago. Yeah. With, they use nuclear weapons, apparently. Uh, you know, I'm open for anything, but what I am saying is nowadays, um, there's been so much evidence of uh, man's existence uh, in the Americas uh, that were so uh, uh far further back than what anyone realized. Well, the, the coastal Miwok, those, those walls that we talked about, you know, when the Spaniards came, they, they were like, what is that? The coastal Miwok were like, and the Ohlone were like, we don't know. It was there when we got here. And uh, the uh, in, uh, indigenous people here have stories of the first world people, that there were Absolutely. people here before they were. And you know what, at this point, uh, as her history is being reinterpreted, um, to constantly are supposed to. So here's one of my points too, is Whitney went to his grave insisting that Calavera skull was real, despite all evidence uh, to the contrary. But when finally it came down to it, his assertions right. on uh, the existence of man that way predated anything that had been currently in the scientific knowledge was true, was true. And, and it's, it's interesting because these, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, Table Mountain and this lost civilization under Table Mountain, you know, and these other civilization, this other weird civilization. Yeah, it's not as sexy as the one up in Shasta uh, no. in the lava tubes. I realize that. The but, Taros and the yeah, Schaefer, the Schaefer mystery. But there's a uh, documentation for these. Yes. <laughs> but but these these exist these exist at various levels all over the world. I mean there's the Magna Bowl. You know, go Google the Magna Bowl. You know, it's a bowl that's dedicated to Ishtar, written completely covered in cuneiform. They found it in, in the Altiplano in Bolivia. I mean, who knows how that got there? There there is no conventional explanation about how a bowl dedicated to the veneration of Ishtar ended up going from, you know, the Babylonian people to the Altiplano in the middle of Bolivia, but that nobody can explain it. And these, these, you know, these problems, they, I mean, they found spark plugs embedded in geodes 
you know, in Death Valley. I mean, there's a whole like lost city in Death Valley, apparently. It's no, there's there's never an explanation, and conventional conventional research, they don't try to address it. They just try to either ignore it or they try to bury it. And that's one of the things that you see is that a lot of these kinds of artifacts, you know, the Smithsonian in the early 1900s went around through California and collecting all these artifacts. And they were like, well, we're going to put them in the Smithsonian. Well, they sure did. And then they disappear. Yeah, I mean, there are dozens of these skeletons. There is a photograph of the Table Mountain collection, though. An actual photograph and drawings, pretty detailed. All those guys really knew how to draw. They, they were did. like, they knew how to draw the plants, you yeah. know. And uh, William Brewer, who uh, was the botanist for the, um, uh, he was just an amazing man as well. No, but it, I mean, it's you know, it's it's the serpent mounds, it's the Pima mounds, you know, it's there all these these you know locations. It's like they well, the Native Americans built them. Well, actually, the Native Americans will tell you, we don't know what it is. It was here when we got here. You know, and, that, that's and that's of what antiquity it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they have myths about who created the Serpent Mounds or the Pima Mounds. Or there's actually yeah, my brother lives by Etowah. Is that the name of it? It's these mounds in Georgia. Yeah. And uh, they're just, a, uh, they, they, they kind of... Re not reconstructed them in real life, but you know, like figured what they learned, and they were just like this these great civilizations. Oh yeah, uh, the the Cahokia. Cahokia. Yeah, it was a massive city. Yeah, there in, you go. New Orleans. You know, it, it, uh, I mean, it's enormous. Hundreds of thousands of people live there, and they had these they had these earth earth mound pyramids. You know, but we know about Cahokia and, and the the people of that area because they were. <clears throat> they were still living there when the French got there. And the French actually interacted with them before they decimated them. But, no, I mean, there's, there's just tons of these things with no conventional explanation. Well, anyway, in the end, uh, despite uh, Whitney's... Uh, uh, in fact, I found him a more attractive character because he just fit the bill as the uh, explorer scientist... And after a rereading of uh, kind of like the, uh, the, the story, the controversy of uh, his findings and stuff, right. uh, and in light of modern understandings. Cool. Uh, modern. Yeah, but they make more sense. But the one thing about Whitney was just like uh, a lot of these uh, scientists is they come up with this theory and then it gets locked. It becomes institutionalized. It becomes, right. they're not going to budge these guys. And uh, Whitney didn't either. But fortunately, uh, uh, that old SOB, he was usually right. Apparently. <laughs> but, it, you know, it is a problem. I mean, Heinrich Schliemann and Troy. I mean, they told Schliemann he was nuts too, but until he found Troy. Uh, it's, yeah, no, there, there's a kind of situation where, you know, it gets institutionalized. I mean, they were teaching, you know, Piltdown Man was real up into, up into the 70s. I mean, you can find textbooks from the 80s where they still talk about Piltdown Man, which was a total, total punking. I mean, it, it was about as fake as you can make it. 
You know, uh, very similar to the Calaveras school. Right, and what I realized is everything that I was taught in grammar school, elementary school, is not the understanding there is today. No, I mean, every, everything's been reinterpreted. Well, I mean, I, I spent five years studying, you know, cultural and physical anthropology, and it's like, you know, 10 or 15 years after I got out of school at, at a UC, you know, the entire system was rewritten. And I give my professor, I had this one professor, I gave him credit because when he talked about the, the kind of evolution of humans, that, you know, back then it was still taught that it was kind of like a tree, but it's not really, it's kind of like a series of parallel, you know, parallel lines. And he, he taught it as a series of parallel lines with very fluid dates. And I think that was very progressive at the time I was in college, but it, it turned out to be very true. And his, his model would account for these kinds of things. But most academics are unwilling to question, you know, what the status quo is because to question the status quo affects funding. And these, all these people, they, you know, they live and die on funding. If you want to go dig in Tanzania, well, you need funding to go to the Olduvai. You know, if you want to go excavate a bison kill site in North Dakota, you need funding. You know, if you want to excavate, if you want to go down in the Harvard mine and try to find some more of this stuff, because it's probably sitting down there, you need money. So uh, what was amazing about, uh, he ticked off the California legislature so much, they eventually fired him, withdrew all, all his funding. Yeah. But he owned the Harvard mine. And he also had a permanent chair of geology in Harvard, and they were giving him a salary the whole 15 years oh, wow. uh, he was gone uh, That's exploring. He could, he could do it. He could right, do it. and he finished, he finished the uh, survey, and it's still like the go-to text. It is. Yeah. What is it? It's eight volumes, right? Eight volumes. Yeah. I can't, I will confess, I have not read all eight. But. There's, there's another guy <laughs> you should check out. His name is Corliss. And Corliss did a did an entire series. It's it's very difficult to actually find the full set. You know, I have most of it, but Corliss self published an entire set where of books where he analyzed um, anomalies, whether they were uh, ge geographic, geologic, you know, botany of uh, stars, planets, you know, whatever he has it. I want to say it's like 16 or 20 volumes broken up by what by discipline. And so you can go in there and he has a lot of I'll have to see if if he has a lot of the Calaveras and Tuolumne stuff. But he has you know these these kinds of things that you're talking about. He documents them. So I'll have to check Corliss, but it's yeah, he specialized in that. It was a very 14 <laughs> 14 thing. But it's, it's interesting. I mean, I had no idea that the amount of artifacts until I went and looked that they pulled out of Table Mountain and, and the mines in this general area. Now, uh, as, uh, kind of to uh, complete the matter, is that a few years back they found a um, site with uh, prehistoric mammals um, in uh, Valley Springs. Okay. And it's still under uh, excavation. They won't give out exactly where it is, uh, but they have found the mastodons and the uh, cameloids and oh, wow. uh, all that there. 
And a giant beaver, I think. Oh, yeah, the, the, the ancient uh, beavers, they're, they're uh, huge. Yeah. It's like a cow. It was a yeah. So, and the ground sloths. Oh, yes. They found a lot of sloths up here. Really? There was a skeleton of a sloth on display in Columbia, but it's not there anymore. That was a long time ago. Yeah, the ground sloths are fascinating. Yeah. There's a thing called a condylarth, which apparently was it's kind of like a ginormous cow that existed here, too. But, I mean, it just fascinates my, it fires my imagination to think of these 19th century Explorer scientists, fossil hunting in uh, California, and coming up with the big finds. And again, it, it goes back to what we talked about before. You know, it's, it's like all these things, whether you're interested in Bigfoot or UFOs or paleontology or, you know, lost civilizations. I mean, we have it here. Yes, we but have we it all, folks. We, we should start our own tourist bureau. I think should. Visit Tuolumne is too boring. It's no, it, it really is. It's like come come visit Tuolumne. You can go skiing at Dodge Ridge, go swimming in in Pinecrest. It's like yeah, but yeah, how about go on an overnight ghost tour? I would totally. <laughs> you know, I want to go to the to the hospital here. But I mean, those are the things I think Tuolumne County should be promoting. Well, you know that <coughs> the old Tuolumne County Hospital is one of the most haunted sites in California. I've actually had a tour of that hospital. It's and it was by the janitor guy, and he said that he named, I forget the ghost name, but he actually had friends with some of them. Although I did see an episode of one of those ghost buster people. Ghost adventures. And it was, uh, it was pretty bad. harrowing. It was bad. Yeah. That's why I want to go in there. Oh, okay. I mean, I want to I actually broadcast a show live from there. Uh, I think you uh, probably could. They still use those. That used to be like a um, maker's lab kind of place. They were trying to revive it. Yeah. Uh, there's a, right there adjacent to it, one of the buildings. Um, they use as some kind of uh, uh, center. They, it's, uh, some, of, some of the buildings are still in use. No, I've got to figure out how to get in there yeah. overnight. Uh, an overnight or... All right, maybe uh, KAD can help you. I would love KAADLP. Uh, broadcast uh, live broadcast from. Uh, live. Yeah, but you'd have to bring in people that. Uh, it's curious that my grandmother, she grew up in Oakland in the 1920s, and she was a, quite the spiritualist. Oh, yeah, and, it, was an, uh, it was an epicenter for that. Um, and uh, she was just. But uh, the strange stuff only happened when. Uh, I was with her. <laughs> yeah, I didn't carry that away from the house. Well, it was just what, her. If I can get it, if I can find a way to get into that hospital, I'm pretty sure you're going to see some strange stuff. Yeah. And you know what's amazing about it? And I said, why don't they exploit this more? I, that's why I'm so glad because of the Bigfoot Festival. Oh, I'm so happy about the. Ah, uh, this Festival. is the third annual, right? Yeah. And uh, let's make it super successful. So there's a four. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Bigfoot Research Organization, what's it called, the BYOB or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a clamper. Right. Uh, but they offer tours, Bigfoot uh, Research oh, uh, adventure tours, tours, adventure tours. And guess where they bring them? Tuolumne County. Uh, that's their tour. Yeah, I don't understand why there's a Bigfoot Museum in Felton, but we don't have one here. 
Uh, you know, we did have at one time the uh, world's largest collection of UFO memorabilia, a museum, UFO museum, here run by Marv Taylor. Well, I know. It was world famous. I know for years in McCollumy Hill, there, there was a guy that ran a kind of UFO, you know, paranormal kind of uh, publishing empire from over there. A lot of uh, stuff from the 60s and 70s. There was a guy up in Amador County that was a gold adventurer. You know, and this was back in the 1950s. And uh, he claimed to have, you know, uh, maps to lost mines and stuff. And then one night he lived in a little trailer and he ran a little museum that was like an old authentic building. And uh, he came in and he threw a $20 gold piece on the bar and said, I found it. And so supposedly he found a wagon full of gold that was, uh, the gold mine, there was no way to standardize the gold. So all the miners got together and got their dust and sent it to San Francisco to be minted. And so that way it was standardized coins. And so the coins came back. It was like one of the first printings, mintings of the mint in San Francisco. And uh, they brought uh, the gold back and it was gonna be distributed back to the people who had invested to get this done. The wagon left uh, headed for Shaw's flat and disappeared. So what could happen? The, um, uh, the uh, people just ran off with the gold, <laughs> say, hey, we got this wagon full of gold and stuff. Let's get out of here. Well, what this guy named Frank's, what was his last name? Anyway, this guy, what he figured on what it was, it was the Order of the Crescent. Uh, they wanted to take over uh, it ended up being what the Civil War was. They were trying to do this ring oh, of, yeah. uh, what were they called? The Order of the Something Circle. Yeah, uh, Jesse James was part yeah, of part it. Of Je- Jesse yeah, Jesse James was part of it. And uh, the these Golden guys. Golden Circle. Uh, that's right. The, the Golden, Golden Circle. Knights of the Golden Predator. Circle. Yeah, it was a predecessor. And uh, bad things. Um, well, they stash gold you know they would rob gold like jesse james would do and right. do these stashes so that it wasn't just to finance the civil war it's to finance this uh big plantation thing that actually went the reason why they called it the golden circle is because it was like oliver wasn't just the united states they're they, world domination with oh, these yeah. guys sure. and uh so uh, he believed it was a stash of gold that had been hidden. Well, uh, supposedly the story goes is that to this day, there are these guardians of this gold. The South will rise again, right? And uh, um, anyway, he threw this $20 gold piece on the bar and said, hey, I found it. And uh, the next day, they found him dead in his trailer, and his uh, museum rifled through. I believe it. Um, and uh, uh, well, I'm not going to get into that whole story, but and, you know, the other thing to remember is that this place is littered with mines. Yeah. And you know, I've talked to more than one miner who will tell you that their belief, <clears throat> at least among the miners, their belief is that pretty much all mines are haunted. So just just the fact that there are mines everywhere, you know, the amount of paranormal activity inside this 
is counting Calaveras, 12 million Calaveras, has to be astronomical because every miner believes in the Tommyknocker. So the idea that, you know, we're sitting, because it's a gold-rich area, we're sitting on just horrendous amounts of quartz, which is believed to be conductive to paranormal activity. UFOs tend to culminate in areas of large amounts of quartz. You know, I mean, this place is... So there's these guys that are cavers, and, and they will right. take you on cave. I think they're called cave explorers, something, but Small I know cars. one of the guys. Yeah. And uh, he says, and, and I've seen pictures. I mean, some of these places, not very far from here, there's these huge caverns. Oh, yeah. How did they do this? You know, you think of a mine as this little place no, you can barely no. crawl through. No. And, uh, uh, and there's mines uh, with little ones you can crawl through all up and down the streets. Oh, yeah. Uh, under Sonora. Oh, I know. Um, some, of the, some of the shops, they can actually still access the mines through the basement. Uh, so it's just all, yeah, it was like, uh, what was the, the name of that Lee Marvin movie? Where they had mined up under the town so much the whole town oh, collapsed. Yeah. That was based on here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, what he says is, you know, when you go into a mine, uh, they have like these feelings that come oh, yeah. over you. Yeah. And uh, he says different mines have these different vibes. Yeah. And they all, all have the tummy knocker. So, if you hear the knocking, you leave. I don't uh, uh My dad lived up on uh, the side of what they called the Kincaid mine. They, they did a lot of gold out of that. The header was right there uh, on his property. And they had the outbuildings where they had kept them all the mining stuff. He sold most of that stuff off. But they were digging wells because I've seen all these caps. And I go, right. boy, you must have had a hard time finding water. He goes, no, those are the breather holes for all the mines up underneath. But what had happened is the mines did flood. Right. And uh, they went down so deep and hit water, flooded the mines. <coughs> but he did have to dig out a new well, and they're putting down taps to find, you know, a good spot for the water. Right. And they come up with these core samples, and uh, they came up with one, and it was like, well, you can't see. How many inches do you think? They, the core sample, and it was pure gold. It was pure gold. They cut through oh, a core. Wow. Uh, but he tried to interest the neighbors around him yeah. because he was like kind of up on a hill and the most logical way to drain the water would be to come in on the side, which is the next door neighbor's property, right? <laughs> I'm sure they weren't very happy about that. Uh, no, no one. And then he realized what the cost would be. That's where that saying comes. It takes a gold mine to uh, have, a gold uh, mine. have a gold mine. Yeah. But they still have the miners. I was just... A week or a couple of weeks ago, I was down uh, Italian Bar Road, and they they have their mining camps out there. You go down them dirt roads for miles, and there's all these little mining camps still out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, still there. Uh, and they're working. They're working the goal. All right. Well, that has been another fantastic show of the Enigma Hour that's actually two hours. I think that's funny. Right. We had a comment <laughs> that says, yes. I was so fascinated with the show, and I thought it was only supposed to be an hour. It says, you guys are going to make a break. And he says, well, I thought it was only been about 20 minutes. And he goes, right. it had been over an hour. Oh, yeah. he, uh, he found that, the stories <laughs> that we were talking about, that absorbing. Well, He's supposed to be listening to that. Hi, Keith. <laughs> you're, you're quite the storyteller. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, again, thank you for listening to the Enigma Hours <laughs> uh, over here on KAAD LP 103.5 FM. And thank you, Captain Tiki, for the, uh, being so masterful at the helm. And thank you, Mr. Dave Allen, for being just a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> so you can find me on Facebook. It's Olaf Phillips. You can find me on Twitter, or I'm sorry, on Instagram as uh, Captain Tiki Show. And I'm still working on the website. It's going to get done eventually. Uh, the show is also broadcast as a podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, just do a search for the Enigma Show. In fact, we are found wherever you find uh, better podcasts. Uh, you should be able to find that. And any streaming uh, service yes. uh, will uh, carry us. Yeah, and you can always stream the show, too, on KAAD lp.org dash lp dot, but oh, i usually use i usually use streamer okay. you don't get the any uh, it's a good steady service yeah live live local here in sonora yeah. and around the world that's right and around the world all right well i'm gonna go ahead and uh and sign off now have a have a great rest of your night and uh i'll be back next thursday uh i'm working on seeing who i can get to come on uh, and have a great guest and uh, we'll talk to you soon so Thanks for listening.